Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Shoes. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello, and welcome to the Dwarf Cast Book Club, the series where we reread, discuss, and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels bit by bit, and finally, after several thousand years, we're finishing off Last Human. Yeah, Maggie. Yes, this episode covers the second half of part three, The Rage, and as always, recommend refamiliarizing yourself with that section of the book. Would we, if you though? haven't already. Would we? Well, well, we'll come to that. (laughs) However, I'm Ian Symes, and joining me in a ritualistic circle, hoping for the sweet release of death, are Jonathan Capps. Hi. And Danny Stevenson. Hello. And, as always, we've got a bumper crop of comments left by our loyal listeners slash readers over at www.ganymede.tv. Now, brace yourself, because the recap of the last part is about the length (laughs) of some of our previous podcasts. Uh, (laughs) So, here it is. In the past, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Armagruder volunteers to crew a terraforming ship, the Mayflower, on a mission to a distant galaxy in the hope of finding his long-lost father, Arnold J. Rimmer. It later gets taken over by its cargo of assorted gulfs and simulants and crashes on a lava planet. Meanwhile, having woken up in Siberia, Lister is offered the chance to instead volunteer to test if a newly terraformed planet is hospitable, after a previous mission failed to return. The planet is designed to keep its inhabitants safe underground when it passes through the Omnizone, but is also home to a gestalt intelligence formed of previous volunteer prisoners. Before Lister goes, he gets to spend a night with a symbiomorph, essentially a shape-shifting sex slave, and is assigned Rita's cabin, who is not broken and therefore has free will. He persuades her to help him escape and they stow away on a ship, which unfortunately turns out to be the volunteer ship. Oh. They land on the terraformed planet and after a brief interlude for sex, find Magruder. While all this is going on, Crichton discovers the truth about Evil Lister, just as the ship is attacked by Kinitawawi. They board and take Evil Lister away, but the damage from their laser cannons causes Starbuck to crash into a lava planet. Beneath the surface lies the derelict Mayflower. There, Cap finds the DNA sequencer and accidentally turns Rimmer into a chicken. Then Crichton finds a vial of Luck virus, using it to find all sorts of useful terraforming viruses they can use to get rid of the lava. While they wait, Crichton makes himself human. That's about it. Oh, that'll do. So yeah, we left on a couple of little cliffhangers last time, and the first one of those to get picked up in this arbitrary part of the book is Lister with Magruder on the planet's surface, where all kinds of interesting terminology is introduced. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we may as well just dive right in and just say that Magruder is really shit, isn't he? <laughs> he's like a caricature of a, a soul he's like Ace Rimmer without any of the charm yeah without yeah. Any, anything like that he's he's there to have an impact on Rimmer which I guess you know is a fair thing for a character to do he's just such a obvious trope <laughs> that's the problem with this book is it's full of these obvious tropes like the, the evil Lister is a, is a trope yeah. Oh yeah, he's barely a character. Magruder having this kind of because um, now he now he can confront Lister about this this uh, this story that he's had about yeah. Rimmer, and it's it's just 
I don't know how Lister thinks he's going to get away with what he's getting away with telling him because he's surely they're going to end up meeting up where he's going to have to. Well, he he assumes that they're long gone. He assumes they're through right, the under zone okay. at this point. Yeah, yeah I think he th- he thinks that at some point as well. Which right, is, okay. Like he's assumed that they're probably dead even. <laughs> well, Lister's not aware that he's in a um, a work of fiction, and it would make no logical <laughs> sense for <laughs> Rimmer's long lost son to be introducing them not to meet up. Yeah, he's not. He's not. A, he's not aware that he's in a work of fiction yet. That'll come in a no. few years. Yeah. <laughs> I do get Lister shielding him from the truth, though. Oh yeah, and it is quite consistent with how he later behaves in the Promised Land with the cats that worship him. He can't quite bring himself to tell them the truth until yeah. much later on. He struggles with that. So he doesn't want to break anyone, does he? Yeah, he doesn't want to let anyone down. He does the same with the cat priest in Waiting for God, where. Yeah. Rather than tell him the truth, he um, instead just plays along with it to make the old man happy. Yeah. Which is what he's doing here with Magruder. But yeah, Magruder is a bit of a tit. <laughs> to be said. I find it interesting as well that um, presumably him and his mates, his little Gelf brigade, have been on that Gelf planet mates. for hundreds of years. <laughs> like a lot <laughs> of years. Well, he's got an anti-aging gene. He has, yeah. So it could yeah. be anything. But like he, they, they have arrived. The entire Gelf society has sprung up around him. Uh, all of the the infrastructure and everything has grown out of that because these are all. This whole thing is seeded by the Gelfs that were on his ship. So Siberia's been built. All of this has been set up, and then he was at some point put in prison and was then mm. part of the first wave. So he was probably in Siberia for hundreds of years or a very long time, and then he's been on this planet for God knows how long. It's never really addressed like what that timeline's going to be, um, mainly because he's got his anti-aging thing, so he can just hand-wave it away anyway. But like, And there's a lot of hand through it. <laughs> Basically what I'm saying is that is a long time to not develop as a character. <laughs> <laughs> Is it thousands of years? And that's what he got. And that's what he ends up with. Yeah, exactly the same person he was when he was in Nixon's office. Yeah, it's clearly been there a significant amount of time because of the sort of the rituals and everything that they've got going on. Like they form the circle of something or other, <laughs> the circle of Sasafasa, the the circle of Sasafasa, the circle of Sasafras. Sisyphus. Sisyphus. What a load of bollocks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll go straight to some comments on this. International debris. Uh, the last survivors on a dying planet, it's important that they keep up their Latin skills. <laughs> You've got to have a good grasp of Latin if you're going to die on a planet. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, if you're in if you're in the Marines, like, there's a lot of, like, Latin, you know, phrases... Well, Chucked about. Is there... <laughs> I don't know. It's all based off sort of ancient terminology and stuff. Forecastle and stuff being used on ships and things like that. Like that's usually something that's born out of old school. Yeah. yeah. Terminology that's you know antiquated, but yeah, not Latin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but it just it just feels like yeah, it just feels like it's contrived, very contrived. That's uh, quite a mild reaction compared to Pete Part Three, who says. 
We have to form the circle of Sacerfacer to banish the rage. One of us will die. Oh, fuck the fuck off. <laughs> How long has Magruder been here to start making up mythical rituals and giving them poncy Latin names? This is not Red Dwarf. Yeah. That sounds, the thing is, that's exactly how Rimmer, that, that, that sounds like Rimmer <laughs> speaking about the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> smack the smack off. <laughs> um, yeah, apart from the fuck. Yeah. But no, he's kind of right. Like, I, what I want to know is how did they figure out that this ritual would work? So basically, uh, the short version is the rage is coming after them. It's a big evil gestalt entity that wants to consume and destroy everything in its path. Mm-hmm. But they figured out that if they form a little circle, um, then the rage will just pick off one of them and leave the rest of them alone. It'll focus How do you figure that out? Yeah, yeah. How do you do? You can't figure that out by trial and error. Yeah, trial and error. That's the thing. But if the person who's trying it dies, then you have to start again from scratch. Yeah. Also, yeah. Um, trial and error doesn't work when the alternative to forming the circle, as is mentioned, is literally everyone dying. Like mm. you, you get that wrong once, then everyone is dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, you can imagine maybe the first time it came upon them, they all just like accepted their deaths and all huddled round in a in a like together, like as a kind of a yeah. trying to G everyone up and then they realised because they were connected in the circle, it all it happened and they're like, Oh well, mm, that seems to have that seems to have helped, so let's just keep doing that. But then again, for how long? Like how long do you can you keep that up for? Because like I, I would imagine he's been on that planet for fucking ages. Like I mean they did say there was like there was like forty thousand of them originally and now there's like Right, I see. Yeah, I think okay. that, that gets mentioned yeah, later. A lot of- that's a lot of rages. Yeah, that's a lot of successes. How right? Let's let's like let's nip this in the fucking bud. Like, let's nip this in the bud. How the fuck are you meant to say that? Well, I googled. <laughs> I googled how to pronounce successes secura frequis because it is Latin, and I found a website called howtopronounce.com, and this is apparently the correct pronunciation. Saka fucker. Saka fucker. Okay, I mean, I honestly didn't even realize this was Latin. No, no me. No, I thought it was just pulled out of his ass. Speaking of googling, uh, Dave said that he's not sure whether the etymology of the ritual's name, meaning to make sacred, uh, really fits with what's happening. Which I will disagree with because the way it's presented is that once once you're in the circle. Everyone is begging to have this kind of full concentrated dose of the rage because it makes them feel like a god. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's actually God is name checked directly by Lister. It's like you know he want he wants to be become a god basically. And that's big shout what, out to God. Yeah. Big shout out to God. What a lad. Hold tight. They see you. <laughs> so that that presumably is where the make sacred part comes from. Still a little bit weird, a little bit loose. Yeah. But here's another problem. The method in which they do this. They don't all form a circle before the rage hits them and then stay there until the person... No, the rage hits them first. They're all infected and then they have to do it to get rid of it. They have to be thinking clearly enough to all get in a circle while they're infected by the rage rather than doing it beforehand. Mm. So that's a very high risk way of well, doing it. Also, things. yeah, while they're trying to kick the shit out of each other as well. Like yeah, exactly. They're all going to be. Yeah. They're all going to be into. Like, I mean, already Lister almost fucks everything up by going to attack Magruder. Magruder has seems to have a certain amount of control, and knocks him down and says, "We need to form the circle." But like, form mm. the circle before you've all gone bad. <laughs> yeah, that would be preferable. It would. 
presumably McGrew has got some level of sort of tolerance to the rage now, having been infected so many times. Like Lister's first drink, and he just wants to start a fight, whereas McGrew is pissed as well. <laughs> he's like, all right, mate, all right, we've all had a, we've all had a bit of rage. Either that or there's just so much room for personality in his head that he's like, it just rattles about, it doesn't really have an effect. <laughs> Farting in the Atlantic. <laughs> in Test of the says that Magruder talks like a character, like he's sort of like speaking like biblical terms. Like, All who inhale his wind become consumed with such wrath. Husband kills wife, brother kills brother. Oh, shut up, you pompadour. <laughs> It's like, yes. it's, I, I do kind of agree. I don't know, it doesn't feel realistic. It feels it feels like it's... I started picturing him as American during this section. Yeah. Which is probably just because he's a Marine and all that. But yeah, the way you talk is like, yeah, half of that awkward epic fantasy vibe that International Debris talks about and half just cliched military Marine soldier yeah. talk. Yeah. There's there's a pretty big clue that he might be American a bit later on, but we'll get to that. I can't remember what. Oh, right. well, no, yeah. we'll get there. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. It's yeah. awful. We may as well talk a bit about the rage as a concept because a lot of people seem to have kind of struggled with it, and I think mm. on first reading, I did as well. The frustrating thing about it is that it is a really good concept, and. I think we'll get to it a bit later on, but someone does say that it is a very red dwarf concept as well of like the the emotions, you know, taking form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that it's it's not very effectively used as a concept. It's, it's wasted. It feels wasted, and it's you know the, the big expert on how it works is this kind of blank canvas. This you know this character that we just don't really enjoy listening to anyway. It's just incredibly ambiguous as to whether it's benevolent or malevolent. Like it's 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 a force of people who have been wronged, and yet it's killing yeah. innocent people as a result of it. Now I find that it's 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 a very strange yeah concept the, the difference that. between like is it a unthinking force of nature that has no control, or is it a vindictive prick? Yeah. Because later on, it's been vindictive because it's stopping them getting into the caverns. Whereas here, it's a bit random, you know. In the last dwarf cast, didn't you say, Ian, when you confused by the fact that it was, you thought it was the souls of guilty party, when actually it turns out it was yeah. the innocent party? Yeah. So. yeah, this section makes that clear, but um, I guess it's an indication that the way that it's depicted is completely inconsistent, that it could conceivably be either of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah, you're right, it is the righteous fury of the innocent, but they're directing that fury towards more innocent people yes. uh, if they were somehow attacking the people in charge of Siberia, the people that put them in that situation, then that would be a logical and sort of heroic thing for the Gestalt to do, but whereas yeah. this makes no real sense as a plan it's just spreading more more misery and more does that mean they get absorbed by the rage? Is that what is that what the inclination is? And then is therefore the rage gets stronger yeah. the more people it attacks and yeah. so it's now got 40,000 odd gelfs rattling around in it. Mm. Oh, very true. Yeah, yeah. All, all it's doing is just continuing this vicious cycle of revenge yeah. and hatred because it is a very vicious cycle. <laughs> lit- it is. A vicious cyclone. The literal it's... embodiment of a vicious cycle. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, it's vicious. <laughs> it, like I said, it does feel like a very red dwarfy concept, like the mm. whole idea of, of making. Something intangible, tangible. That's something mm. that Red Dwarf does quite a lot, and it usually to great effect. Yeah, there's something about this just doesn't 
I don't know. It, it, it's ambiguous and and slightly confusing in terms of what it what does it want. I mean, if it what if it wants anything at all, it doesn't have to have a motive. It can just yeah. be. But you know, it's what it is. It's it's a great big kind of metaphor and thematic thing that is missing a story that supports its themes. Like th- th- this thing belongs in a book that is exploring the nature of revenge and anger mm. and you know moving on with your life or you know an innocence of guilt or that's saying something about or that's trying to say something real about incarceration real world incarceration and anything like that and it isn't the book isn't really doing that it's kind of got this dropped in from like say another theme heavy book that, <laughs> that we didn't actually get it's got sort of three or four small themes and not one big one yeah there's unresolved father issues is one of them with magruder and rimmer but also the duality of lister and evil lister is another one and that kind of goes away and they don't really see each other again until right at the end of the book spoilers there's also yeah the justice and incarceration on siberia but none of them really add up to much and they're all kind of just picked up and put down as and when on more positive note, Dave said that um, I like the characterization of Lister here. The kind lie delivered on the assumption that Magruder will never meet Rimmer is very in keeping with what we know of him from stuff like Camille. Yeah, and, yeah, that was another example. There's some good Lister work in this book. Like we had some good stuff with Rita's cabin, um, him exploring his own knowledge and you know through talking to Crichton in inverted commas, yeah. and yeah, continues here. Speaking of Crichton, should we go to the next bit? Yeah. Uh, which is DNA, <laughs> but a bit different. Uh, it's basically all the dialogue from DNA split between Rimmer, Kat, and Kachansky because Lister's not there for Crichton to have that conversation with. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine for the most part, except when it comes to the double Polaroid <laughs> thing, <laughs> where if you put Kachansky in place of Lister in that situation. <laughs> It just takes on a completely different meaning, it, really. It, yeah, it does, but it, it's not bothering me in the way that it seems to be bothering you. <laughs> I'm not well, saying I that I, I'm not. not saying that I would be sending people unsolicited dick pics. I'm just saying that, like, <laughs> not again. The, no, <laughs> not since stop. They said they said they're not meant to do that. And, <laughs> the thing is, is that um, it's. It, I mean, Crichton is like a hundred percent innocent, right? That's the, yeah. that's the whole point. Oh, of, of course, it. he absolutely. He yeah. just needed to, information, and he thought. Kachansky was the like she's a human, therefore she's gonna know what, what that what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so what's that was the, he wasn't wasn't like was not she's not a female. And he's like he's asking her. It's, it's the fact that he just needs and he just needs someone to tell. But it, it could have been Cat or. But then again, Rimmer would have been the best. Person Kat and Rimmer disappear in that scene. They just, just they just yeah go they do. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, but it's fine. Like Crichton is just a human male who turned up in Kachansky's bedroom in the middle of the night and showed her picture pictures of his erection That's i think all. he was completely naked when he did it as well and like, yeah he didn't even realize either so he just, he just showed up on, on a, you know he, he turned up completely naked and then went away put some clothes on came up the next day and then showed and then show, yeah he changed so tack <laughs> <laughs> no yeah it is it is completely innocent and i think the kachansky being used instead of lister in that situation is that of the three of them of the three humanoids um she's the most likely to yeah, take it seriously eventually. Yeah, be sympathetic. Even though she sniggers like uh, like Lister does initially. Yeah. yeah, Rimmer would just take the piss. Cat wouldn't know anything anyway. No. So it is it is right that it's Kachansky. I just 
I'm not offended or bothered by it particularly. It's just it's odd that the book doesn't acknowledge that it's, yeah. it's more. It's even more weird to show a Polaroid of your penis to a woman than it is to show it to a fellow man. And it's like it's like this is the second case now, and it happened in the last part where the absence of Lister, um, or Lister being replaced by another character, and both times it's basically been Kachansky in a scene that we already know just ends up being awkward and the reason that he mm. was replaced is because he just didn't it's logistics he didn't just happen to not be there so there he couldn't be there so it's it's almost a mechanical solution to say oh well i have to put kachansky i have to put his words in kachansky's mouth and it's not really natural it's not organic is it it's like it's it's clearly a forced insertion of this scene <laughs> into a place that it doesn't really belong and it kind of yeah. it says a lot really because the whole dna strand basically didn't have to happen like it seems no, to have no, only happened to give them a reason to go back into the ship and back into the jaws of danger, and that's it. Even then, it didn't really. I mean, we'll get to the like. Yeah, basically, it is all. The next few chapters, next three chapters or so, are all set in a sort of DNA world back on the Mayflower. I mean, it just goes to show that what a terrible idea it was for Crichton to make himself human yeah. and do this experiment while they were in this mortal danger where they were waiting to break through the mulch of the lava planet and escape and go and find Lister and all the rest of it with limited oxygen supplies and everything else. He just makes himself yet less useful to the crew, gives himself an existential crisis and uses up more supplies. Yeah, yeah. And, and he yeah, gets he off with it. Done. He gets off with it pretty lightly. Like no one admonishes him as much as he probably should have. Cat well, tries to beat the shit out. Of well, him. yeah, <laughs> um, but for, for well, different reasons. I yeah. I do actually have a bit of a point here, and I think we probably talked about this during the DNA commentary. But I have two things, two problems with this that also apply to the episode. The first one is who can't identify half an erection. <laughs> Either way, you're going to say, okay, this is half an erection I'm looking at. <laughs> like, rather than waiting until they put it together, you know? Given the. Uh, this is, I'm going to go into great detail here, so buckle in. Buckle strap on. In. Right. Strap on. So, I think the first half was obviously the centre, the, 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 the shaft, if you will, right? That could look like, I don't know, a bit of an arm. Or something. Okay, yeah, like a baby's arm. <laughs> okay, and then and then he's already seen the penis bit. Right. Like he's already shown him that bit, so he's gone. Okay, well, what that bit, and then this new bit, okay, right, and it's yeah. like put it together, and then oh, like that. That's how my brain is. So basically, yeah, in order for it to work, you cut. You can't see the base in the first. Uh, yeah, it would have to be a mid shaft picture. You can't. Yeah, you can't see any pubes or the pelvis or anything. Which means that Crichton's probably hung like a donkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we've all seen his groinal attachment. Uh, so the second thing is that Robert is not doing a Lancashire accent for Sparehead 3. He's doing a Yorkshire accent. That's. I thought that. Uh, I was going to consult with two genuine Yorkshires. <laughs> yeah. I, was trying to, I was trying to work out whether that was true or not. I was like, hang on, would that be Lancaster? No, because Lancaster's much more... Jane Horrocks than yeah, like rounded yeah. R's, you know, like yeah. burn don't like be that. dirty, don't be dirty. Whereas Yorkshire's a bit more like you know, actually, you know, like the way like, that you two like talk the way that I speak, yeah. which is yeah. pretty Yorkshire. 
Yeah. Can I tell you this for now? <laughs> I'll be honest with you, nothing makes me smell more than sparing three going off on a fucking rant. <laughs> yeah. It's just the ponce in the weight of all that, la di da. I love all this shit, just makes me. It, it... This, this is what happens uh, for when a Yorkshireman announces to everyone that he, he's going to move down to London uh, to get a job there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you go down to that London. Oh. Swanking around with his new tube. (laughs) (laughs) In everything everything twice the price down there. (laughs) It was lucky that they had the spare heads and everything on Starbuck rather than on Red Dwarf. (laughs) It seems like a luxury, doesn't it? (laughs) Even the one that will never be used. (laughs) Yeah, even the one that's broken. I have a I, uh, conceptually actually I do have a problem with the fact that his spare heads have their own consciousness. Like that, yeah, that seems, it does seem a bit of a weird. <laughs> there is a sense, yeah, all these extra characters that are just as valuable. Yeah, they're just as, uh, right, stuck in a cupboard, kept in a cupboard, reading the exit like, sign. You're assuming that they have like like months, like they said, I'm going to be main head next month, and it's just weird yeah. how like that means that every month Crichton probably puts on a new head. Yeah, so there's like you know like. There's bits of information that one spare head doesn't know about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless they have a sync or something. Yeah. Oh, that'd be like yeah, it's like Google Drive. So you you pop the head on and then it just syncs up. And, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, they're just working across different devices. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this whole section we're kind of not massively keen on. Um, I think Stillian Ides sums it up fairly well. By saying we should be heading towards a dramatic conclusion to the book and recycling a TV episode just kills the momentum. Yes. There's no real need for DNA to happen here. And there are some good bits. I like the start of chapter 13 where Crichton is pondering about death and the nature of mortality and starts talking about... It goes on a bit of a hitchhiker's-style whimsy about a man suddenly wakes up one morning and doesn't realise that's it and he's more worried about doing the tiling or whatever. That's a good bit of prose, but other than that, there's not that much to like about this section of the book. Really. No, yeah, it's it, it's mentioned that, that that part kind of justifies its inclusion because it shows that there was more to be done with DNA. And I think at the time, well, at the time of our commentary, we kind of settled on the fact that DNA could have been a two-parter. Like, you, you DNA would have been made better by having more of it. Um, mm. Um, more explore, uh, exploration of you know um, what's going on. So at least at least there is some of that here. Yeah, it's just not necessarily the right place for that to happen. No, no, it maybe should have happened earlier, and he should have spent most of the book as a human, like explore. You know, not not just yeah. <laughs> for a couple of paragraphs. Um, basically, just to get them back into the ship. <laughs> yeah, so they go back to the DNA suite to turn Crichton back and discover the professors Longman are there. But they've been fucking about with their own DNA so much that they're stuck in three forms and unable to take on any new forms. And it just what? Yeah, what? <laughs> because there's a bit, like they Crichton goes to bring up the mechanoid template, and they one of the Longmans emerges with Crichton's body and says, "Ha ha! I've stolen your DNA, and I'm using it now." Uh, what? So it can only be used by one person at a time. Yeah, that's a very nineties thing. Isn't it? It's just like it's like it's digital, but one, it's like yeah. yeah, but it's it's kind of got, got physical logic as well. Like uh, yeah, I have the only copy of Crichton's DNA, <laughs> like, so Crichton can't use it because I'm using it. So the order of things here is that they're continuing salvage operation, 
Mm-hmm. Crichton has an immense <laughs> experience of pain, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very funnily described, I think. And then him and the cat are about to kill each other. And then Kachansky pulls him to one side and then for, for no reason, really, starts prodding at the stasis pods. Like They, they haven't paid any mind to these stasis pods at all. Yeah. This whole time, just like, oh, I wonder, I wonder if we can just open these up. <laughs> Clearly some stretches happening to kind of introduce these villains as a, as a kind of a... It's a pacing problem. It is a pacing thing. In the episode DNA, there's a bit at the end where all of a sudden, in an episode that's not had any monsters or great peril in it, all of a sudden they have the uh, Mutton Vindaloo Beast that appears and they defeat in order to give it a nice conclusion, like an exciting five minutes to end the episode. Yeah, it, That's what the Longman beasts are doing here, except it's in the middle of the last part of a novel. It doesn't need yeah. a big perilous conclusion here. It's just a straight swap. Like Instead of the Vindaloo beast, here's the Longman, which are brought along and then dealt with fairly quickly. No lasting implications. Like The, the altercation doesn't mean that uh, the, there are no repercussions later down the line from having had this altercation with the Longmans. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. It slows everything up. It's over really quickly, and it just feels like a hangover from the episode where it felt like they had to have something there in place of the Mutton Vindaloo Beast when they really didn't. They could have just kept it being about Crichton and spend a bit more time exploring. I mean, all the stuff where they, where it's sort of Crichton's POV coming to terms of being a human... They go into that in a lot more depth in the TV episode as time to, and it's the better for it. Yeah. It's just an unnecessary diversion to then stop that and then have a battle with some fucking leopard-shaped professors. I'm spotting a pattern here, though, because we, we've described like the whole DNA section really as maybe being disposable, that they didn't have to do it and it's getting in the way. And then kind of this part of it especially, having to insert peril, because obviously like if you had no DNA section, you had no peril, then their job in this part of the story would be completely empty. And it's it, again, it's another problem brought about by the fact that Lister's off on the other side of the belt, completely separated from them, and they need to have their peril because all of the actual peril that the book should be focusing on is with Lister right now. Yeah. And so you're having to kind of split it, and that's probably part of the reason why, or one of the main reasons why this part of the book feels so crowded, is because you're having to deal with two different locations. Yeah, and they've effectively paused all the stuff with the rage yeah. in order to do... And now DNA. we have to care about just some nondescript scientist that has the head of a sheep and the body of a sheep. But it was the body of a different sheep. I'll mention this because you've just... Yeah, International Bree says, especially the fact that one is described as a hollow goat, you meet seemingly out of nowhere. So well, one of them is yeah. a goat, but it's dead. It's a, so it's a hologram. A hollow goat. goat. Yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> the three-headed guy in DNA is a better representation of people abusing a system. Yeah. And that would have been a, yeah. that would have been an amalgam of the three people together would have been a more mm. creepier villain than a snake guy, a leopard guy and a goat. Yeah, he's got all the same problems. <laughs> or a mechanoid, whichever fucking... one it is. I don't yeah. know which one it is. Yeah, one of them becomes a mechanoid. Yeah, it's not the leopard. They never the they never explain it. how they get that sorted either. That's a than... really good point that the um the episode has a three-headed man and you've got established here three copies of the same person yeah. and they come back that could have been a much more effective 
Or a Vindaloo type. Beast. Put the Vindaloo Beast in it. <laughs> like, well, Lister's not there, so it well, would have to be yeah, well, we a could, cottage could, cheese. Yeah, exactly. It would be a cottage cheese with pineapple chunks. Well, no, it wouldn't. It would be a scene where, for no reason whatsoever, Kachansky's eating a Vindaloo. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. <laughs> oh, hang on. No, I've just realised I ended something I definitely need to mention here. Now we're on chapter 14. Right. So... Doug really wants to flex his judo skills in this uh, bit of work. <laughs> oh, I don't know what this, like, other than just padding, this feels completely unnecessary to be mentioning, right? Yeah. It's such a weird set of phrasing. It's I was, I was equating it to, like, the way that I often go off on tangents, but <laughs> I'm not putting it in a book. Yeah. But <laughs> there's way too much kind of information thrown into this paragraph that absolutely has no bearing on the plot at all. It's just it's just it just slows everything down. Yeah. It really stands out. Yeah, it's that for me. I put in my notes Doug did some research on judo terms then. Because <laughs> it just feels copied and pasted. He got he got some judo lesson like jiu jitsu lesson vouchers or something for Christmas. <laughs> So you had like a brief like session, like an experience. Day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like, and I just put it onto Kachansky because everyone knows Kachansky is an expert in, you know, that 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 well, definitely set up skills of jujitsu that Kachansky has. It's like you can see that Kachansky does have some interest in Japanese culture. Like we know that from mm. from Infinity. So there's some level of that, mm. like you know, and she's being sort of you know brought up and you know learning all sorts of skills as a as an engineer or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just feels really, just feels really thrown in. I want to show how much I know about judo right now. Well, at the time that Doug was writing this, it was not long after he'd just had a big falling out with Rob. So maybe it was him saying, like, don't fuck with me. I know, I know judo. I'm going to put it in the book so everyone knows. My brother in law owns a sword shop. <laughs> <laughs> What's that from? You got to that <laughs> Athletic mints. Okay. I'm nipping these in the bud as I find them. We, we, we've referenced it so many times, and no, no one's ever mentioned it in the comments. I'm pretty sure they're just for the sake of me and Ian at this point. But so yeah, we, 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 I mean, part of my problem with the Kachansky and, and the and the Jiu-Jitsu is that it just comes out of nowhere, and it reminded me in an inverse way about how that I think it's the Buffy, the Vampire Slayer pilot where she defeats the enemy at the end by using her cheerleader gymnast skills that are kind of set up as part of that. And then there's Mm. also Rose in the episode Rose, who does the same sort of thing, but that wasn't set up. So (laughs) like it was kind of coming out of nowhere and was clearly just like a a Russell T. Davis likes Buffy. And so put that bit in there. Kachansky's had so little development that just like, it's almost like she's having personality kinks just added in as as the story needs and in the end the reason she ultimately defeats the various monsters is uh the luck virus yeah yeah she finds. and that's really handy <laughs> <laughs> i mean like it, it's it's hard to complain about because it's it's the same way that it's used in quarantine but quarantine kind of makes a joke out of it. The whole way that they get out of the plot of quarantine is by using the look virus. Yeah. Uh, but it's in a jokey way, like they're walking along and Crichton says, oh, we need to find a, such and such a thing and Lister bumps into it. Yeah. 
but here and and throughout the rest of this book they're just they're constantly using the look virus as a means to sort of solve whatever situation they're in and it gets like maybe if this was the only time they did it it'd, it'd say fair enough but this is the first of about three or four oh, instances God. where the look really virus egregious plots. examples as well coming up yeah but mm. i mean um the way that kachansky defeats the um a leopard, the leopard, yeah, a snake. I don't know. Um, <laughs> is pinging an elastic band at its quote mighty right testicle, which incidentally is my favourite Nick Cave song. <laughs> my favourite brand of cheap bread, <laughs> or my least favourite. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Dave reinforces that point. Like, I feel like every novel should include a look virus as it comes in very handy when you need to start wrapping up the dangling pot strands incredibly quickly. And uh, I think he's <laughs> maybe being sarcastic. Dangling though. testicles. <laughs> dangling <laughs> testicles very quickly. And yeah, and then they ping down all the DNA cylinders, which we were talking about last time, that all these cylinders come down for whatever is in the DNA machine, being whoever is using the DNA machine. And it does seem to be one size fits all because like, they come down... <laughs> And land perfectly over Cat and Rimmer to keep them safe, and but they can also trap a leopard, <laughs> the same type of tube, the same thing. Ooh, I could trap a leopard. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'm furious! I could just trap a leopard. <laughs> oh, and, and but this is also the section when they. I mean, you're talking about an egregious use of the uh, lung virus. We're about to. I think we're we're here. Oh, the worst we're at one. At least on one of them. Well, it's the one where the cat basically invents um, hyperspace the light travel. Traveled. I think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, like Doug has decided to completely abuse the luck virus. Yeah. <laughs> I get the idea of them having to do the coordinate thing, and it's like, but the coordinate thing's great. I, I, the coordinate thing is in I the like spirit the of the episode. Thing, yeah, and especially the joke that. Crichton is using basically metric instead of imperial. Yeah, all the other way around. So they did it again. But then, like, it again, it's unnecessary as well because the reason that they need the hyperspace travel thing to be invented is because they've said that they're, you know, however long, however far away they are from the planet. They didn't need to be. Yeah. <laughs> they could just say, oh, that coordinate is just around the corner, but let's get there straight away. This look thing feels very similar to the coincidence problem we have in Entangled. Mm. Where yeah. you can have some sort of... The idea of luck is that you happen to coincide with the way the universe is aligned that day. Whereas yeah. the way that Doug's writing it is as if you are influencing that somehow. Mm-hmm. And it explicitly says that that's what the luck virus is doing. Yeah, he said that if luck is some sort of positive infection, then it must somehow enhance individual sixth sense, imbue them with new powers. After all, stopping a roulette wheel is a form of telekinesis. That makes <laughs> no fucking sense whatsoever. Yeah. So it, they're not saying that the, the the ball would land there because you knew it would. It's that you made it happen. And that's mm. not the same thing at all. That is that is yeah. that is a totally different mechanic you're talking about there. It's just it's weird, it's conflation of different ideas thrown together. Very confusing, and also that explanation as well contains our old friend somehow, <laughs> which is, yeah, which seems to be Doug's way of explaining anything that he wants to happen in these books. Just somehow it happened, must well just be sh, <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it is. Shh, it's fine, yeah, 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 yeah. Shh, it happened somehow. Shh. 
worry about it. That is not relevant. <laughs> My name is not important. I mean, there's a few things here. So Pete Part 3 says, I'm going to call it a hyperdrive. Like, few. they'll be reunited with Lister in less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, of all people, the cat. Mm. And for it to just... I, I can't quite describe like what is so egregious about the, the invention of this new travel system. It's like... And I think what it is, is what you said, Danny, is it isn't just syncing up with how the universe is is working or how, how what the lay of the land is going to be for like random chance and stuff and somehow intuiting that which is what mm. luck virus should be doing it's i'm going to do literally anything i want and th- that's the end of it well the thing is you the, the idea of the luck virus is that you could do anything you want and it will still work that's well, the point that's the difference yeah. it's not that you would do you can that you're making it happen by doing this specific thing it's kind of confusing but it's like you know you it's not that you punched in a random set of keys and that made it the right sequence it's that you punched in the right key sequence right so, yeah exactly yeah, by yeah. chance yeah. it's not a, it's not a by chance i've reprogrammed the keypad somehow that's not what you're doing you are by chance picking the correct combination it's not the same thing and 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 with the cat, like I said, with the cat, there's there's a problem with dialogue in this book where it's really hard to visualize these characters saying these words. It's like they're always mm. kind of attributed to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it was Crichton saying doing the whole thing about the hyperdrive, I don't know whether does Crichton even take the Crichton takes the look virus. It seems to work on him. So yeah, he was, you know he why didn't why couldn't he come up with it? Like you, it just feels weird. It <clears> feels <throat> wrong to attribute to the cat. You're right. It would feel like, yeah, either way, it's a bit of a cheat, but it's just, it's whether or not you get away with it, either by making it entertaining enough or making it in character enough to just pass by. And I think you're right, if it was Crichton that had done it, Crichton who was aware that theoretically there is a system that could work, it's just that no one's yet figured out what the correct, you know, what the secret formula is. Ah, here's a guess at the secret formula. Yeah. But for cat to just completely pluck it out of its ass, it's effectively the same thing. But with the cat, it feels like a cheat, and with Crichton, it would feel more earned. But if yeah. the but if the cat was to like literally just write down random zeros and ones, and then Crichton looked at that and went, "Actually, what you've done here is you've done this." The cat didn't know what he was doing; it was just looking. Mm. But the thing is, because he kind of knows about this folding space time and all this kind of stuff, it was just whether the cat was making it up and it happened to be right. That's probably what Doug's going for here but the cat would never really do this like the cat would say something stupid like you know he would he wouldn't have this level of intellect required to to, to get to this idea in the first place Kachansky would yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and Crichton could Rimmer could guess and pretend to get it right but not the cat it just it just it seems so unrealistic even from from a science fiction point of view and there's not even the most basic attempt made to set this up previously like all you had to do was you know the the technology that they were getting from the kinetoari like something there maybe hooking into like the possibility of like a one-time use super speed or like you know hyper hyperdrive style Mm. transport just anything anything that just doesn't make this feel like the most mechanical plot driven you know thing to Method happen to get basically to B, yeah basically. yeah if the cat fell on a you know he fell on a he, 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 you know he, he, like something some set of events happened cat fell on a a keypad and smashed it you know with his with his hand you know similar yeah. to when Doug wrote this book 
Oh yeah, yeah, and something like, clumsy, something cat-like. Fucking hell. Something cat-like oh, that yeah. would then end up being the way that it turns. Crayons go, ah, no, hang on, whoa, 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 the way you've just knocked those things on the floor, I've actually spelled out something, and that's the kind of thing that would. Yeah. That makes more sense from a cat point of view. From a you know the cat not not knowing anything but still getting the right answer. That's that's what feels more right for the cat. But just if it had been Kachansky, Kachansky could have easily have gone. You know, of, of, she's an astrophysicist for fuck's sake. She, she would have been able to at least have some inkling as to what to do with this information or to have some guesswork. The navigation officer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> even the, the even the improbability drive in Hitchhikers knows how stupidly unlikely things are that's yeah. the point of the improbability drive it's improbable although that's it's also possible, misused in improbable. the movie well because yeah the improbability well, drive turned into a everything turns into something else well um, it's improbable it's just not <laughs> it, it's possible it's just improbable yeah. But the point, it, but it, yeah, it just—I don't know. It just—it's a strange fudging of the idea, and it's the same fudging that that Doug does in Series Eight with the Luck Virus as well. The Luck Virus cures the sex of magnetism somehow, <laughs> yeah. and I've never understood that. I've never—the Luck Virus cured it for me. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, the, none well, of this not makes. Very lucky. It's it's weird. It's just it's strange sort of dialogue that's tossed off, and then you just expect it to go along with it and not question it or not think about it. And it's like I need to know what the fuck this means. <sighs> right. So chapter. Well, I was going to say let's finish. <laughs> let's fi- <laughs> chapter fourteen. Um, I, I will finish it with a stillian eyes comment. Breaking of the Luck Virus valve should be quite a smart way to resolve this section of the plot. The only way for the following chapters to work is for the crew to only have a sliver remaining. Kachansky took the almost empty tube, suggests that there ought to be no plot hole here. And so we continue. <laughs> You're going for that. There is no on. more Luck Virus. Instead, the crew get reunited with Lister. Uh, him and Kachansky roll around snogging for several minutes for no particular reason. <laughs> Get a cave. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then Magruder meets River and immediately faints, which is quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, that's fairly realistic if you're spending, presumably, let's say millennia. Like, you know, there's been a few thousand years he's been kicking about, wait, like hoping that he'd meet Rimmer, mm. as improbable as that is. <clears throat> Maybe he had a vial of the luck virus as well. And yeah, so, like, okay, there was a discussion in the last Dwarfcast. <laughs> Around universes, oh and I, th- I feel like this is probably where we feel. So, like, uh, you know, I'll hold my hands up when I'm when I'm wrong, when I appear to maybe be wrong, even though I am right. <laughs> but Dave says this chapter really cements for me the idea that Magruder is definitely meant to be the son of Arimer and not one from an alternate dimension, i.e., the late the last Dwarfcast discussion. And yeah. it does seem that the way Doug has written this is that it was possible for Arimer to have conceived Michael because Avon moves off the ship very quickly after the affair and therefore it's still at yeah. a point where she doesn't think it happened and then she finds out she's pregnant, etc. Yeah. So yeah. I'll accept it. Well But yeah, Doug literally I, I said was, it was a different dimension. <laughs> I was the one who was arguing against it, but I'm I'm less convinced <laughs> as time goes on. Because yeah, like as we said last time, just to summarise that emotionally, the only thing that makes sense is for it to be R. Rimmer's actual son, yeah. mm-hmm. because otherwise it's just effectively two random people from different dimensions. But 
The only way that the the Red Dwarf black box would touch down in the uh, Atlantic Ocean in Magruder's lifetime, and the only way Yvonne would know that Rimmer had been brought back as a hologram, is incompatible with our universe, so it must be a different universe. Yeah. There is ju- it's just so inconsistent that some details point to it being our universe 100%, and other other details point to it being not our universe, not our Rimmer, who was the father of Magruder. Mm. And so uh, you just conclude whatever you prefer, and I think the 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 best <laughs> the best conclusion is that it is our Rimmer's son, even though that doesn't quite add up in terms of what Magruder would know about our Rimmer. It's true. I mean, maybe we could clean this up by saying that Holly, at the time that the explosion happens, already knows exactly what they're going to have to do once Lister comes out of stasis. So as soon as they're escaping the solar system, the black box is sent with Mm. details of Holly's intent to resurrect Rimmer to keep Lister sane and not actually putting a timeline on it. I don't know. That's very generous of you. It's incredibly generous, <laughs> especially considering <laughs> that in the book canon, um, Rimmer being resurrected, as we've discussed before, was a reaction to Lister, yeah. Lister's behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. If it was pre instead of Holly, then that would yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the plus side, the conversation between Rimmer and Lister is really funny. Dialogue about Oh, he's my son. Him, he's my son. It's a little bit everybody's dead, Dave, in the <laughs> repeated phrases and stuff, but it's one of the few bits of this book where I can really hear Chris Barry's voice as I read it. It's one of the few bits in this book where you can really hear Lister and Rimmer having a discussion together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you could probably count the amount of conversations they have on one hand. It's or maybe I'm forgetting a lot from the beginning, but it just seems no. it's like it's missing. It's a big piece that's missing, right? Yeah, it's not a great book for Rimmer. <laughs> Put it. <laughs> you, you could have cut that up earlier. <laughs> In terms of Rimmer's character, everything that happens of interest to Rimmer happens from this point on. Yeah. For yeah. the whole of the rest of the book, uh, everything leading up to this point has just been a passenger. It's just been Lister's story with a brief detour to be Crichton's story for the DNA bit yeah. and um, now briefly it's going to be Rimmer's story for a bit before it hands back to Lister the only possible setup we've had is his internal monologue when they first find the stricken Starbug and Rimmer mm. is reminiscing about his um, about the knowledge chip kerfuffle yeah. and parenting in general and how his parents have affected him and you know blaming them and whatnot yeah laying a bit of groundwork yes yeah, for this, yeah. For um, tiny little bit of groundwork yeah but that was a long time ago i mean i know <laughs> like for us because we're reading it bit by bit it's a long time ago but in terms of the book it's also quite a long time ago yeah. considering how dense it is and how much happens even in these few sections but the rest of it carries on in pretty much real time from now on i think oh we've got a few more comments of uh about how the Magruder thing works. <laughs> International debris. Uh, my guess is Magruder left Red Dwarf a few weeks after the affair and only then found out she was pregnant, at which point she would have to believe the affair was real. Sadly, it was too late to get in touch with Rimmer as he was long gone and soon to die, thus the plot hole is sealed. Yeah. I'm not sure it is sealed, but... That was yeah. the comment I was thinking of when I was explaining it earlier, actually. Um, mm. Yeah, I, it, it works. It just about works. It's just not yeah. made very clear. <laughs> Shockingly. 
Pete Part 3, the explanation of Magruder appearing to be the same age as Rimmer because Magruder has his ageing gene removed is kind of ignoring the more crucial factor that Rimmer is dead and hasn't aged in three million years. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> in the book universe, he hasn't aged. In the TV universe, he continues to age at the same pace as Chris Berry. <laughs> Another comment from International Debris, which is also a point that I made, uh, what is a pair of unoculars? <laughs> well... It's a telescope, right? (laughs) (laughs) Two telescopes. (laughs) I looked up unocular. It's not really a thing, other than, like, unocular is a word, and it means relating to one eye, as it it says on the tin. But to have a pair of unoculars... I mean, they could be binoculars that are not attached to each other. Yeah, so, so yeah, they are things. So they're like a chameleon where you'd have like independent. Um, <laughs> you can view in different places at the same time. Maybe I don't know. I like that. All right, we'll take that. Yeah, we'll take that one for the <laughs> mental image alone. <laughs> yeah, Dave makes a similar point to me. That the nice Rimmerlister dialogue here makes me realise just how much of the central element of Red Dwarf has been so lacking throughout the book. Circumstances keep the two characters apart for much of the novel, and the heart of the show is lost as a result. That was honey. <laughs> <laughs> that was a yawn from Honey, uh, an, an anxiety yawn. She like goes. Oh. And on this chapter, Stillian <laughs> makes a point that I hadn't really thought of, but that's kind of the point. They say the way Rita's cabin is sent up a mountain seems really clumsy. This is a character who could morph into any useful object, and yet now is reduced to simply carrying heavy stuff with the cat. Yeah. In Last Human, Rita's cabin is about the tenth most important character, so presumably Doug hadn't really thought at all about what to do with the symbiomorph. That's a really good point. I hadn't noticed that basically, other than the odd line here and there to remind us that she's there, that's kind of it about Rita's cabin, which is a shame. I really like Rita's cabin. And the cat, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy. They're just off. They're you know they're presumably paired up and having fun. It's because fundamentally, and this is something that we've come back to time and time again, it's a real struggle in Red Dwarf and in this book in particular to have scenes with lots of characters in them mm. without at least one or two of them being redundant. And so there's this constant shuffling of chess pieces to move characters away so that you can have different combinations and it's just a few characters here and a few characters there. Which rather begs the question, why just have so many characters in the first place? Just have less characters. Yeah. And then you don't have this problem. Well, the problem is, is that all these characters, or a lot of these characters have cropped up as plot devices. I mean, Rita's cabin, Yeah. as interesting as the idea is, she's nothing more than a, a plot device and therefore as soon as she has done the bit of plot she needs to, completely superfluous mm. and, and actively a problem, you know? And... All of the prisoners on the ship just immediately dying. And even Magruder, to be honest, is like, mm. he's supposed to be a central part of the plot, but he's, he's, st- he's also a bit, like, kind of treated a bit like he's not really there once you get past the point of, you know, what happens at the end of the book. Magruder is there in order for Rimmer to do what he does. Mm. Otherwise, it comes out of nowhere if yeah. that was to happen. It's to give, it's to give Rimmer's sacrifice a, a bit of weight. Yeah. yeah, we've seen a, almost a better version of this in The Promised Land is that mm. Rimmer there is he's being heroic but he's doing it for his crew and he's not doing it for some child that suddenly appeared out of nowhere like he's doing it for yeah. his actual family the family he's been with for decades and I think you could completely remove Magruder and have him come to the realisation that he needs to be you, you go from the person who made a terrible lie about being allergic to parachutes 
through to someone who is willing to sacrifice himself for Lister, Kachansky, and mankind as a whole. Mm. You know, rather than oh, my son, who then, as soon as I've sacrificed myself, is literally a plot hole for the end of the book. You know, that yeah. <laughs> that ruins the entire premise of the book of being called the last human. Fuck you, Michael Magruder. You are shit. <laughs> but also, like the conversation that happens between Rimmer and Magruder, I really like Rimmer in it. Yeah. I think is really nice the way he talks about Yvonne, praises her as a mother, um, explains to him that everything that is achieved he owes to her rather than this you know mythical version of a father figure that she'd invented. Yeah, she invented it for this reason, and it was a good reason. It's something she had to do. It's a really nice thing. The admission of truth takes place fairly quickly, which is a contrast to Lister in The Promised Land when he has to tell the truth to the cats. Yeah, there's no tedious it, sitcom like, ooh, better pretend I'm a hero. He's just straight in there with the truth, yeah, which is... Which is a, a, an admirable thing. Yeah, I like that, yeah. And the Magruder's just a complete wanker about it. He's such a cunt. <laughs> he's such a <laughs> cunt. <a> prick. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's snobby about, about uh, Rimmer's, Rimmer's rank when actually the point he should have been making is, um, aren't you actually a second technician? <laughs> And not a third technician. Oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> That's the real issue here. I'll mention this because because Pete's got a good point about the, the general setting of this. So they moaned about this earlier, but one of the lousiest things about Magruder is that we've barely spent any time with the guy, but the one thing we witnessed was him fucking up the Mayflower mission and getting a lot of people killed. In the yeah. novels, Rimmer wasn't responsible for anyone dying, so Magruder's hang-ups are pure snobbery about his father's rank. Fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is based off the sort of like again, there's a conflation between Rimmer in TV show and the Rimmer in the book, mm-hmm. and the Rimmer in the TV show is assumed to be the same person. It's not. There's a fundamental character point that is different between the two, which is a, maybe a throwaway decision in the first book, but as you as you kind of go along, it actually is quite a big divergence for the two. Right? You've got one, you know, one who is responsible for killing the crew, one who isn't. And that's actually quite a big gap to bridge. And in this book, clearly, Doug has either not remembered that or it's like you have these two competing versions of Rimmer, you know, fighting with each other. Mm. I mean, yeah, I can understand Magruder being annoyed about the fact that his dad isn't who he thought he was. But the fact that Rimmer was being absolutely sincere about where Magruder's, you know... Where Magruder's feeling should be is 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 completely on point, and it's not Rimmer's fault. No, he it's didn't not. choose for this to happen. No, yeah, yeah, he he didn't even know Magruder existed until five minutes ago. It's not like he'd plotted this whole thing with Yvonne where yeah. they'd lie to him. Also, it's kind of similar to what happens to Rimmer himself in the beginning of him finding out that his father isn't the person he thought he was. In Rimmer's case, it's literally. He has a different father to the to the person that he thought was his father. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like in both cases, it's it's having yeah, it's having the father figure in your life, having that rug pulled from under you, and sort of examining. It it forces you to examine who you are and and where you've come from and what you've made of your life. And Rimmer in the beginning deals with it a lot better than Magruder deals with it here. I think that's that, because the polar opposite has happened though. Where you've got Magruder, who was a, who has become this huge rank captain because of the guy that he thought his dad was, and Rimmer, and never, you know, never thought of himself as being a lower. Whereas Rimmer has always seen as himself as being wanting to aspire, not being able to, and then finding out his dad is actually on the same level as him. Mm. So there's there's a disparity between those two ideas. He still got there anyway, regardless of who Rimmer was. 
So it shouldn't yeah. matter. I wonder if Michael got that chip installed. He's certainly got one installed on his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Hmm. Oh, yeah. One of the things I don't like about this uh, section is that smoke me a kipper, I'll be back for breakfast is now generic marine jargon yeah. that all marines use for each other. It is weird. It's like it's like he woke up one morning and had the thought of a dying rimmer mm. blasting out Morse code for I'll smoke me a kipper, I'll be back for breakfast and thinking, fuck, that is a great moment. And it is. And it is. But then he had to work backwards from it. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. Yeah. I mean, we might as well. His is all basically the same bit where all this happens. There's one big chunk. I've got some thoughts about Crichton. So Crichton is starting to kind of set up the finale. Mm. He has a plan to sacrifice himself to to kill the rage. After the conversation about how the rage can... <laughs> best guess, sir, it can somehow, you know, whatever the, whatever the line was, it can somehow detect electricity and come and kill it. Oh, yeah. uh, but it doesn't detect Rimmer and Crichton. Um, anyway... So Crichton having the idea of infecting himself with the Oblivion virus, which is a good callback, a very good callback, I would say, because by this point, we've forgotten about it because it's done its job. Yeah. And bringing it back in this way is very satisfying. I love that idea and, and Crichton's kind of logic of having to hide it from everyone because if anyone tells him not to, he can't do it anymore, is really good bit of logic as well. So, like, it's, you know... Mm. Some positive bits there. Uh, the only thing I will say is that Crichton says his CPU won't allow him to uh, perform the operation. CPUs don't grant permissions. That's, that's all in software. <laughs> uh, CPUs just spit out ones and zeros. <laughs> I also like that he was getting nasal alerts or whatever they were called, or factory alerts. Oh, yeah. And he assumed that the system was faulty and that you know any alerts that he's getting was because the system was broken rather than there being something there is also what happened in Infinity when that guy spilt coffee over his desk oh, and yeah. assumed that the warning lights were because of the coffee spillage, not because of the imminent nuclear meltdown. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but it's reminiscent of that. Yeah. What happens here is that Evil Lister has been there the whole time. And that's when it, it all starts to get a bit silly with <laughs> Evil Lister. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of what you think about Evil Lister, and Evil Lister is shit... <laughs> The execution, the reveal of him being in the ducts, the air ducts the whole time, and he killed Kinetawari before even getting off the ship, I think is brilliant. Mm. I think that is a great twist. It's well executed and it's well timed, the reveal of it. It's just the fact that Evil Lister at this point is like a... We've all seen David Tennant try to play an evil character, right? <laughs> and it's basically that. It's like this the most basic <laughs> portrayal of evil, cackling, maniacal evil. Um, <laughs> I agree in theory that this is a good twist. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can see why it is theoretically, but I just get too bogged down in picturing evil Lister doing all this. <laughs> so, and like he overpowered four Kinitawawi all on his own. When he was being dragged off by them and like they were in the airlock and they were ready yeah. to go and he just suddenly overpowered four fucking massive gorillas that were all <laughs> up against him. And the fact that he's been crawling around the vent shafts, crawling around the vent shafts waiting to heal was how it was described. It makes me think of uh, there's an episode of The Simpsons, <laughs> Treehouse of Horror episode, where there's an evil Bart and they keep him 
locked in the attic and you just see him at the vent every now and then. Like I just picture this like sort of, meow, meow, version of Lister. <laughs> and now I do as well. Being able to hear handily specific bits of dialogue that take place so that he knows about look viruses and all that kind of shit. What gets me, I think, is in the broader strokes, if you're not thinking of like a hunched up homunculus evil lister like <laughs> regenerating from gamma rays or whatever um yeah. is the the horror aspect of uh, it's it's like it's the classic phone call is coming from inside the house yeah yeah, the, the, yeah so, someone's been living in your house for yeah someone's been watching you the whole time not the heartwarming you know leela's parents were in the walls the whole time <laughs> way the you know like there's something malevolent always watching you and that combined with the tension leading up to Crichton's realization, I think, is handled very well. Like the olfactory mm. stuff is great. It's also funny because he's like, "Well, I can't remember what the code was. It was e- it's either a decomposing body or a peach tree." And then you know, seeing the feet and suddenly it dawning on you, like that's great. And then obviously, as with a lot of things in this book, it all falls down in the details. <laughs> yeah. Um. And that's what's frustrating, I think, is that maybe there's an article to be written where you chop up this book, you you identify all of the the strong themes, the strong kind of points, and streamline it, like come up with like a, you know, a timeline where you're cutting out the fat and you're you're enhancing the good bits and correcting bits here and there. You could probably come up with a really great story here, I think. It's just this, isn't it? It's it's just, yeah, isn't it? It's too busy, there's there's too much, it's too unpolished, it's too unedited um and it's it's not actually for, for for all that it's trying to do it's not actually based in character nearly enough as it as as it should be as as doug at this point being getting on 10 years writing for these characters it should be so focused on the character stuff because that's what was happening in the tv show you know like character stuff was coming out left right and center really great stuff he did quite a good job with character stuff in seven as well to be honest in some mm. in some ways and it just feels it just feels lacking in that in that respect especially when the the other book from what i remember so good with with character stuff especially with rimmer but we'll find out we will find out <laughs> in future dwarfcasts which we're quite looking forward to <laughs> getting getting through i think so chapter 18 is basically where Everything happens. Like chapter eighteen is is the size of most of the rest of the chapters put together in this uh, little <laughs> mini section that we put together for ourselves. Basically, the big boss battle against evil Lister, where lots of things happen. Lister gets shot in the bollocks. Rimmer is persuaded by Crichton <laughs> to go and help. It's a really good scene. That bit's a good scene. Our first showdown with Lister is like. Again, it feels unnecessary. It's clearly there. It's been put there to kind of to pile on one more layer of disappointment that Michael feels for Rimmer, I think. Um, because, you know, Rimmer fucks it up. He misses his chance to... Oh, yeah, to pick up the pistol. To pick up the pistol, yeah. yeah. And it, it's like, it, again, it's like I'm reading this scene and it, it's here for mechanical story reasons and it's, and it, and it's obvious. It's like mm. you know we we need to make Michael even more you know disappointed in his dad, so we have the payoff later, and because it's all been done in such an amazingly compressed space, <laughs> international debris says Rimmer's low self esteem defeating him again. The whole gun snatching bit is brilliant rimmeriness. Yeah, it's very much it's so, very much on it, point. Yeah, yeah, good internal monologue. 
Pete Part 3 says uh, it's a bit late in the novel to finally give us Rimmer doing something Rimmery, being so racked by indecision that he does nothing. But it brought to mind an alternate version of Back to the Future where George decides not to punch Biff while Marty watches. Maybe I'd just rather be watching Back to the Future than reading this novel. (laughs) (laughs) And watching Back to the Future is better than most things you could be decided to do. So It's a fair point. And then you've got the rumour with the Astro Strippers that got mentioned way back. Chekhov's Astro (laughs) Strippers. (laughs) Finally make an appearance. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, just want to remember, that there is no reason for that broccoli, is there? That was just a joke. The uh... If I remember well, right, I think it's to make the, the testicle pinging bit work. Because the bit where Kachansky wasn't sure whether she took the lug virus or the broccoli thing, so she went all test yeah. the theory mm. and got a rubber band and snapped a bollock. And then it was like, she was like, well, that, well, that wasn't a broccoli that did that. Yeah. I do have a slight theory that I will extol, if that is indeed the word, <laughs> that I will say. <laughs> um, it is my theory. When we when we get to the end, because I, yeah. I have a half-formed thought on the, the okay. broccoli virus. But anyway, yeah, the Astro Strippers. I like Rimmer putting it on backwards. Yeah. Like, not realise, like, why is this, why are these straps not working? Why is the control at the back when it should be at the front? Not <laughs> Put it all together. That, that's good. It's the audience being ahead of the characters. It's, yeah. it's a good source for comedy. thing of Rimmer being used as a, to get out of the... Yeah, has this been used in something else? In, in being dropped down a, a, a shaft? Or am I maybe just thinking of... I think I'm, it's kind of like a small-scale version of what happened to him in Better Than Life during the marooned bit. His battery's run down and then he gets rebooted on Red Dwarf. It's like using his light beer as a form of transport, basically. Didn't mm. they do the thing in Entangled where they got him to go through a door and open it from the other side? Isn't that what... Yeah. Is that what you think Yeah, that's, that's the nearest equivalent. Right, yes. Yeah. But, yeah, but using the light beer, using the physical presence to, to move him around is quite a unique thing, I think. It's a cool thing to do, but it's again, it's one of those things you don't really want to be reminding the audience too much that that's something you can do with Rimmer because it open, it will start to open up some holes where you're just like, oh, well, why didn't they do this at this point in order to, you know, in order to escape? Like, why didn't they get Rimmer's light being throw it out of the window in Meltdown or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Put it on a timer. It's always cool when you kind of use Rimmer's because it's easy to forget what, what Rimmer essentially is just a floating light bee. It's always cool to kind of use that. We're all perfectly aware of what he is. <laughs> yeah, there is just so much, so much so happens much. here. Yeah, the I mean, pissing about with the Astro Stripper. He manages to halt alternative Lister, but ultimately, evil Lister has a shot at Rimmer, hits his light B, and effectively kills him. Yeah, and then Magruder suddenly realizes, oh, he, I, I did like my dad. I loved my father. Oh. Why? There is a lot of dialogue in here that's very uh, it's cringy uh, saccharine yeah exactly and, or, or just like again first drafty like so Pete Part 3 sums it up fairly well This is, we, we alluded to this earlier when we were discussing whether Magruder's American or not Magruder is just embarrassing he's come for his boy and lots of whoops and cheers I thought this guy was 40 something not 12 so there's a it, it, when Rimmer turns up on the Astro Stripper Magruder says he's come for his boy in a Texas drawl. That's the that's the quote. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. come for his, like is he doing that as like an affectation or has he got a Texas drawl that has literally never been mentioned before? I think it's meant to be sort of like like Magruder's meant to have a sense of humour. Is he? I think. <laughs> yeah, I think he might like be. He's right got time well. to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like this big cathartic moment. 
It's a really appropriate place to do it. Yeah. Oh my god. Sinstillion <laughs> says, "Why is it that when Michael utters the words, that's my pop, an image of Scrappy Doo enters my head? <laughs> exactly, that's my pop." <laughs> so yeah, that's who Michael Magruder is. He's the Scrappy Doo of the Red Dwarf universe. Perfect. So Rimmer's dead. Michael's still a prick, <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, the rage is... comes, yeah. and it's it's the it's the two Listers, eighty-eight, <laughs> the Kachansky and the Magruder have to <laughs> have to form the circle of soccer fucker <laughs> and then yeah i think this works quite the logic of this that um lister try uh, evil lister tries to cheat the system In he a tries really to use the look way. virus yeah <laughs> he does it by effectively licking kachansky's breasts but we'll, we'll yeah. skip past that bit oh dog he uh he tries to cheat the system by using the look virus, but doesn't take into account that the fact that the rage makes you want to be taken over uh, means that, in fact, he does get what he wishes for, which is to be killed. And so that's the end of that. Yeah. It's, it's a funny one, this, because, like... Again, if you don't think about it too hard, it's fine. Yeah. But the second you start to think about it as a, as a concept of the look is... The look virus makes things happen. Yeah. That's... Bollocks. Yeah, and also yeah. I don't like the fact that this awful cunt, who is like <laughs> the main villain of the book, essentially gets like a from his perspective a triumphant end. He gets exactly what he wants in that moment, and it's it's not like there's nothing there's there's not a, a kind of a a sense of proper finality to to what happens to him. He's tossed off like you know every other character that eventually has to be tossed off in order to get this book finished. It's a nice bit of logic like because again it's one of those things that you realise yourself while reading it and then a few sentences later the book confirms your suspicions which is a really satisfying interaction Mm. to have with a book and it's quite skillful to write like that but you're right, think about it a little bit too much and it kind of... I suppose it it just depends on your on your interpretation of what look is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this is based on. It's just that interpretation. It's just that that interpretation of luck is not my interpretation of luck, and therefore it doesn't work. Evil Lister was a misfire, right? Like I think he starts off quite promisingly in, in the last part when we first meet him. The fact that he's kind of like this force of nature that and um, works in a way to unsettle the reader because you're imagining Lister being like this, being this kind of unpredictable force. Yeah. But as the book goes along, and he he just becomes a just a cackling villain. Just a cartoon really baddie, ha- basically. A cartoon baddie mm. that doesn't really have any... What was his goals? His goals was to get to the, the DNA machine. And he's not really mentioning the fact that that's what he's trying to do. He's just like, just wants the escape pod and, well, yeah, and restart the human race with Kachansky. So he wants to kidnap... He, 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 he wants to cosplay as Bowser. <laughs> that was an incredibly mild way of putting what his intentions <laughs> oh, <it's>, are. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, I think that's uh, that's just the most pleasant way of putting it. It's, it's a bit like Bowser. He's a bit like Bowser. Than he's a bit like Fritzel. <laughs> yeah. But what is Bowser if not a dinosaur turtle version of Fritzel? As created by the DNA machine. <laughs> is there anything else to say on chapter 18? Uh, Peepat3 says, uh, better put me back on your Christmas list, kids. I don't believe this character. I recognise him in a thousand shit action movies. I just yeah. don't believe him. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's 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 what it is. It's like it's just a, it's a very typical bad guy. 
Yeah. It doesn't feel like Lister yeah. at all. It never has. He's, he's never no, been there a quick. No he? similarity between this character and Lister at all. Yeah. Other than the fact that they you know look similar, there's nothing connecting those two people. As as the last bit of this um, section, we'll leave the last word again to Stilinonadi saying. The last of the luck viruses used now, surely. It seems a fairly neat way of wrapping things up. Yep, seems fair enough. Chapter 18 was, as we said, one of the longest, slowest chapters to read because so much happens. By comparison, uh, chapter 19 is fairly quick to read, but that's mostly because most of the chapter just takes place as a series of Morse code messages. Yeah. Yeah. And so you only get about five actual words on each page at one stage. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really inefficient use of trees. Thanks, Doug. It's like he was getting paid by the page. (laughs) Let's just spell out all these Morse code messages a letter at a time. But no, it's Rimmer's noble sacrifice. Basically, taking Crichton's noble sacrifice (laughs) and and doing it himself. It's a convenient sacrifice. We haven't really touched on much of the fact that, like, holy fuck, Doug killed Rimmer. Yeah, Rimmer's yeah permanently dead. At the time, this is him saying, "I don't want to write any more novels." Fuck novels, right? Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> it's like I, I'm, I'm killing Rimmer. I mean, at this point, did he know that he didn't really have Rimmer for much of series seven? Like, is he? That's what I'm wondering. If <laughs> yeah. it's like Chris is leaving the show, so I'm going to take this opportunity to get rid of Rimmer from the novel universe the novel, as well. Yeah. In a similar way that you know Norman was erased from the book <laughs> yeah. universe at the same time, but yeah, Vim is actually dead, which is a fairly big thing. Which, as we've discussed, he's, the fact that he's not really in this novel that much until yeah. these last few chapters means that if this was the last we ever saw of Rimmer, then it would be a real shame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, Red Dwarf can't work without both Lister and Rimmer. That's just. Yeah. We have since since this book was published, that experiment has happened, yeah. and we know <laughs> the results. Yeah, because of course Lister is the last human being alive, which um, is discussed in this chapter when he's talking about the fact that he is now infertile because he's been shot in the bollocks. You shot me in the bollocks, Lister. <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, about the fact that he's the last human, and it's it's his responsibility to carry on the human race, and he's failed because he's the last human. Which is said while he's stood next to Kachansky and Magruder. <laughs> International yeah. debris says he's still thinking of himself as the last human, as if Kachansky is an alien. <laughs> well, women are from Venus. <laughs> Sticking on the International Debris uh, theme, <laughs> quote, less life than a Cornish discotheque. Classic Crichton line there. <laughs> I hadn't even <laughs> twigged that that was supposed to be said by Crichton when I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those. Uh, and that is kind of from series seven onwards, I guess. Those kind of lines just end up in whichever character happens to be yeah. speaking at the time. People Part Three really didn't enjoy this novel, no. um, but I very much enjoyed reading his comments about it. <laughs> a lot here about Lister reflecting on his inability to father children. You had twin boys in that backwards reality, Dave. Since you haven't given them a second thought, I'm surprised that this is a big deal. I think I'd be more concerned about Michael cracking on to Kachensky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and thus the, the, the presence of Michael Magruder like rears its weird head <laughs> at this yeah. point. It's, it's, it's very odd. Let's just quickly wrap up um, the death of one of the greatest characters in sitcom history. <laughs> <laughs> it just, just happens here. Yeah, and 
Rimmer fires himself off and, and does the Oblivion virus thing, kills the rage, and ends with pausing to spell out the acronym for Smoke Me a Kipper, I'll be back for breakfast. It, it just like, it sums up everything about yeah. this book and the clumsiness of the writing. The fact that he pauses for a, a an acronym or an oh. initialism that has never been established previously and that everyone is just expected to know what he means. <laughs> it is clumsy, but like you know, in like I like I mentioned before, in isolation, knowing what we know, yeah. it's a great moment. It's a moment for the fans more than for the characters is my yeah. criticism of it. It's like, yeah, from a fan point of view, that phrase is meaningful to us and, you know, that that's a cool moment, him saying those words. But for the characters, it's like, it means something to Magruder maybe because they'd had that conversation before, but it's not even Magruder that translates. It's no, Lister. He says, oh, he's saying Smoke Me a Kipper, I'll be back for breakfast. Everyone has the wrong lines in this yeah. fucking book. <laughs> How does Lister know that? He's not a Marine. He does it from such a stupidly long distance that they would yeah. see it anyway. Because it's saying that he stood and watched the light be wended its way, shaking across the tract of now playing over the blackened, holocaustic stumps of petrified woodlands, over the desiccated riverbeds, over a landscape that once was lush. <laughs> like, this is how far he is, right? And then finally the bee hovered before the orange twister. The bee stopped, teetering on the edge of the raids, bit of winds, and then Lister aimed the inoculars across the cannon. He stopped, he can't go through with it. So this is fucking so far away that he's done this and then he's just decided <laughs> to start blinking the message before he fucks off. Surely he'd do it before he fucked off towards it. And then he ran out of batteries, fell to the ground and <laughs> he used his last bit of energy and just did it. It's like, oh, you know that big train sketch where it's a man, it's Mark Heap and he's, it's the recurring sketch throughout an episode of him being put in like situations from which there's no return and then just at the last minute realises he's got something to say and just goes, oh! Uh! <laughs> That's River going on his big heroic sacrifice and then yeah. thinking of a cool line while it's slightly too late to say it. It's just, he's effectively just shouting his cool action hero quip over a long distance. Yeah. Like, it's lucky that Lister happened to be looking at him as he started blinking that message because yeah. otherwise it's just like, oh, was that some twinkle in the distance? Exactly that. That's exactly my problem. So then, with Rimmer dead forever, they successfully hide underground as the planet goes through the Omnizone, go into a new dimension, and it's terraformed itself into a lovely paradise. Uh, Lister and Kachensky settle down and fuck each other in the grass and just immediately fuck each other just immediately well that's another theme of this book it's just like okay well we've spent three weeks underground (laughs) as we've traveled through the omnizone into a different dimension we've just this second clawed our way into daylight for the first time in those three weeks let's go and have sex behind that grass over there yeah now Right now. Fair enough. I mean, you can't have sex when you're going through a black hole, man. It's just got too much going on. <laughs> it's a brown hole I'd be worried about. <laughs> Stay on the floor, I'm worried about. A white hole. <laughs> what even is that? <laughs> They're all white holes by the time I finish with that. <laughs> Stu. <laughs> uh, okay, right. So, sick. international debris says, and so Lister and Kachansky are going to start making what will quickly become an inbred family of humans. <laughs> At least yeah. she's not his mum in this version. Yeah, to be fair, at least that is true. Um, 
so let's talk about this ending. Kachansky actually has, so she claims, a whole vial of luck virus. They down half of it each, and that is supposed to be lucky enough that Lister's irradiated bollocks will be able to produce live sperm. At first I thought she was going to have a vial of his sperm. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would have been a much better callback. But... Although it would have been a bit weird if they both drank half of it immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wrong vial. And they say you can't write for women. Fuck it, of course. Like, having a vial of his sperm... Left over from when they were bartering yeah, with the Gulfs. It's right there. Even if they wanted to use the look virus to like find it again, having oh yeah, it was stashed over here the whole time. It's yeah. right fucking there, and it wasn't there. okay. Right. Well, anyway, you've got that. But my my thought when reading it uh, this time round was, I was sure that the broccoli virus was going to come back in some way, and I I almost had a false memory of it coming back in some way. <laughs> is Kachansky lying? And is this vial actually the broccoli virus? And the the weird, slightly mangled message at the end of this is you make your own luck. Mm. Oh. It's, it's like a placebo for Lister. Yeah, a placebo. Like, oh, don't worry, we've got this luck virus, that means. But that wouldn't... Unless they were creating a race of mutant broccoli babies, <laughs> that wouldn't actually help. Well, because it's not, it's not you know, getting it up that Lister has a problem with, as far as we know. It's the fact that he's sterile. And, well, no one, like, no one says that Kachansky gets pregnant. No. She might have just done it just to kind of trick him into having sex with her again. I mean, that is her raising Datra this entire book. <laughs> <laughs> trick Lister into having sex, preferably while he's half asleep. <laughs> I'm uh, sure yeah, anyway, that was to. my thought of, like, you know, as it has the broccoli virus come back. No one else has mentioned it, which makes me feel like it's um, probably bollocks, but... Um, oh, uh, bollocks, the bollocks. Issue, yeah. But then, yeah, as has already been mentioned, if Lister can't um, produce offspring, then Magruder's going to have to fulfil that role, right? Mm. <laughs> and... Well, at least it would help the gene pool a bit. Yeah, a little bit. If is what international debris was getting at. Like they, you can't rebuild the human race from just two people because then the second generation you instantly run into yeah. incest. It's Adam and Eve, not Michael and Christine. <laughs> <laughs> but on a character level for Lister, this is clearly designed to be that character's final ending. Like there is no way yeah. that a sequel happens to this book. If Doug ever wants to write another novel, he has to completely disregard this and just start again and say it was a different universe or whatever so as an ending to Lister's story forever it's a nice it's a good ending for him he finds a planet that's not Earth but it's close enough Um, I mean he's already in this universe in the novels he's already found Earth and made a kind of life there but he's forgotten about that now (laughs) let's ignore (laughs) that for now Um, so yeah and he's settled down with Kachansky he's going to spend the rest of his days trying to conceive children. Uh, even if that doesn't happen, he's going to have a lot of fun trying. It's a nice ending for Lister as the character, but a really weird ending for Red Dwarf, the the concept, the franchise, the whatever. Yeah. Um, with Rimmer dead and everyone else kind of forgotten about. Like, as soon as Lister and Kachansky run off and, and 
going fucking the bushes. It's like Crichton and Cat had forgotten about. Magruder's still there. Rita's cabin is presumably still there. I can't remember whether she's even mentioned or not. I wonder if they remembered that she has loads of powers that they could use to help them escape from the cave. Presumably they did. You can imagine elements of this being used in a final, final, final episode. Like, you know, being on a planet, being basically finding Fiji, the metaphorical Fiji, mm. yeah. is clearly the end of Lister's story and in, in all of this. Not finding Earth, like, you know, never Earth, but it will be his new home that he can call yeah. Fiji. But yeah, like, killing Rimmer probably isn't something you necessarily want to do because that doesn't complete any particular story for him, does it? No. <laughs> that treats him like, you know. Other than dying a hero. That's the yeah, other than dying that, a hero, I guess. Which yeah. is Ace Rimmer kind of. Or has already kind of done that. He's kind of all, yeah, he's already had that ending, hasn't yeah. he? <laughs> I think it's about time we started to sum up. Um, we've got some final thoughts from both ourselves and our lovely listeners slash readers. Uh, so let's have, just have a little pause, a little bit of music, and we'll come back and give our final thoughts. <laughs> an incredibly strange book <laughs> it is <laughs> it, it, like I've always defended Last Human a little bit over the years but having but then I've never read it for the purposes of reviewing it before mm. I've, this is the first time I've sat down and read it with my analytical I need shit to talk about in a podcast head on <laughs> and that's when it's kind of fallen apart I do think in the past it has kept me entertained it's just, it's not really a Red Dwarf book. International Debris says basically that. He said it's, yeah. a, it's not, it's a, it's a decent sci-fi novel, but it's not a good Red Dwarf book. Yeah. yeah. And we've been saying it throughout the whole, the whole thing. It's like, it's, it's, it's what, that's the vibe this book's been given off the whole time. Mm. I've never really noticed until someone pointed out that this is like, I've always thought of this as extended from Red Dwarf we had before, but I think Capsi, you said, did you say it was like more like series seven? Red Dwarf, and that's where it feels more. That, that that was me remembering what Ian said in the last episode, which is, yeah, like, one thing that that rereading this book has given me that I've never had before is that I now under, fully understand this book's place in Red Dwarf history because it it's always existed in a weird hinterland between the two eras. But what you said in the last episode, Ian, which is that this is more like Series 7 than it is 6. And yeah. it's like, this is basically, like, <laughs> the, the the place that this book inhabits is, it belongs with 7 and 8. It's in that pile, you know. And yeah. I never really thought that before. I always thought it was a bit of a weird Series 6-ish sort of a thing. Mm. It's kind of like a more extreme version of what Doug's Dwarf was for a while. And I'm kind of discounting the Dave era because in... In most Different. cases in the Dave era, it, the, the form is back. But yeah. certainly Series 7 and 8, and you can probably lump it back to Earth with it, but definitely Series 7 and 8, yeah. has a different vibe to everything else. Last Human is the most extreme edge of it. And it's kind of like he's just thrown everything at Last Human. He's made a sci-fi novel that ditches comedy for the most part. It also ditches logic and <laughs> and good plotting for the most part. That's by the yeah. by. <laughs> but it's kind of like the most out there version of Red Dwarf, taking it as far as possible in that direction. And then Series 7 dials that back a little bit. And Series 7 is probably halfway between Series 6 and this last human universe. Yeah. Which makes it more palatable. If it was as 
far out there as Last Human was, then it would have been even worse. If you think about Series 8 as a book, it works so much better as a book idea than it does a TV show. We always said that Series 8 would work better as like a comic or something in a written form, in novel form, than it would, yeah. in, than it would in, 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 you know, visually. That's Some stuff because... you don't need to see, but... Yeah, it's probably because mo- a lot of the performances in Series 8 are a big part of its problem. And so <laughs> anything that yeah. removes the performances is going to improve it. <laughs> it's only really the hardcore um, commenters that have stuck with uh, Last Human to the end. So throughout this episode, we've just been quoting um, four people, really. Um, but yeah, we've had, we've had a final thought from International Debris. Uh, let's have a bit of a final thought from Dave. I realised as I started reading it that I'd forgotten large chunks of it, and then realised as I continued reading it exactly why. It's not all bad by any stretch, and there are some nice adaptations of and expansions of ideas and moments from the TV series, as well as some decent new characters and ideas. But overall, there's a strong sense of it being hastily cobbled together that wasn't true of Infinity and Better Than Life. It does It does feel, it does scream that this book is rushed. There's yeah. lots yeah. about it. There's loads of, like... Like everything supports that idea basically it's very frustrating yeah. to say it as well because it's like you know you don't want it to be the case but it just feels like as if this book was like just well it, yeah it feels out. like bad criticism that fans <laughs> like fandom mm. all fandoms not Red Dwarf particularly but all fandoms are often um, guilty of of just saying like this feels rushed this feels not thought through this feels like it didn't have enough thought put into it but like the inconsistencies, the lines that are attributed to the wrong characters, the um, d- the Starfleet Space Corps confusion, even within the same paragraph, um, <laughs> not knowing what rank Rimmer is from one page to the next, knowing what model Crichton is from one page to the next, it's definitely not had enough proofreading or redrafting. Mm. I think yeah. that is something that you can say. The, the attention on the finer details like that's mm. self-evident isn't it and I, you know we could speculate about he had a few months to fulfill a contract or whatever and that well yeah we do know that the last human was the was what this was going to be the yeah. third novel was going to be the last human written by Robin Doug then they split um and then last human just written by Doug came out um and it had been it had been a long time that The Last Human was in the works. It kept yeah. on getting pushed back and, and delayed, and then all of a sudden Last Human came out of nowhere. Mm. So, yeah, that does support the, the idea that it was a bit of a rush job. Rush job, yeah. Contractual obligation, and or, and then Rob ended up with a bit more time because he had, you know, a year later his one came out. But mm. who's to say... Shall we give the last word for the for this part at least to Pete Part Three, filing away Last Human with Time Wave and Series Eight as Red Dwarf? I won't be touching again. It's not good, Red Dwarf, and if it didn't have that name attached, there's no way I'd have read past the prologue. Again, not something I'd say about any of the other novels, including Backwards, which I'm genuinely enthusiastic to revisit, even if it does get a bit bleak and nasty. That's a good, yes. it's a good job. <laughs> <laughs> We'll come to that in in future Dwarfcasts. But first, does anyone have any small points that they'd like to uh, raise before we uh, wrap up for good? It's a really nitpicky thing, but the even good. With the acronyms are inconsistent. Chapter eighteen, the 
SCM becomes an SMC. Oh, right, yeah. Space Corps Marines becomes Space Marine Corps. Yeah. While we're on acronym watch, um, (laughs) I spotted EP for escape pod, which isn't the most egregious example, but EP does not mean escape pod to me. EP means small album. (laughs) Extended play. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody mentioned says, This is how we're going to speak in the future. (laughs) (laughs) And the ending for Rimmer is basically like the final boss of of Doug acronyms. Actually, on the subject of acronyms, but this the problem with this isn't so much the acronym itself, is um, when Crichton is a human and he's saying that he doesn't have this particular piece of knowledge anymore, he said, he, he's, um, I, I no longer have my RAM. Yeah. RAM <laughs> is temporary memory used for fast <laughs> access. He's talking so, about a hard drive. He's talking that, about a hard drive, yeah. Doesn't that... Um, confusion continuing to tick to ride. Yes. It does indeed. Over the years, you've had more than a field of sheep. Yeah. Which, Again, is, as a sentence, even if RAM was used for knowledge for, for permanent storage, even then that line does not work in any conceivable way. No. <laughs> I have two very small, small points that are both about the same chapter in chapter 11. They're both kind of language based complaints. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, there's a bit where Lister and Magruder are having their initial conversation and then a Galf comes and interrupts to say that the rage is coming. And what he says was, uh, suddenly there was a flurry of activity and a party of volunteers entered the cage. Nawaki, sire, the rage is coming. What the fuck is Nawaki? <laughs> are you sure that that's the Galf word for leader or something? Yeah. But... I googled it to see if it was an actual word. It's a, It's not. It's a name. It's a sort of African name. I, I, I wondered if it was that that was the Gulf's name, and he was coming in and sort of announcing himself. But oh, like, surely you'd address the person you're talking to rather than I don't walk into a room and say Ian Symes. Would anyone like a cup of tea? Well, he says sire, so presumably he's calling him sire as as like you know someone would call their king sire. Yeah. Are they referring to Magruder as Nawaki? I think so. Oh, hello, that's, that's how, that's it, could, how it could be a greeting. Works. Yeah. Hello, sir. The rage is coming. Sir, they're firing, sir. They're firing. <laughs> yes, thank uh, you, Nawaki. Either way, it can, it, it's something that needs to have been maybe made clear in some way. Yeah, it shouldn't rely on someone having access to a... <laughs> A search engine that didn't exist when yeah, this book was written in order to make sense base. of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, my second uh, small point from this section is that I really liked the phrase they headed south towards a fan of mountains uh, because rather than making me think of a mountain range fanning out, it made me think that there was a fan of like a person <laughs> who was just really enthusiastic about mountains. <laughs> they headed south. To meet a mountain enthusiast. Oh, did you know? Mount Everest <laughs> is the tallest. They had to change the amount of meters that Mount Everest was because they wouldn't believe it was so specific. <laughs> true fact. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a true fact. <laughs> That's a natural thing. One other thing that kind of stuck out to me is that Doug mentions Edward II in conjunction with hot pokers. Mm. And 
I was reading that and I skipped past it the first time and then I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, am I supposed to know what the fuck happened to Edward II? Like, it's not it's not one of those stories that's told in school. <laughs> so I did have to look it up and yeah, he was interned in Berkeley Castle and um, basically, you know, after a deposition, a deposal, and the legend is that he died with a hot poker up his ass, but actually it's probably that he just died of natural causes. But it seems like a weird one to pluck out. Hmm. Maybe it was something that was slightly referenced in Blackadder now that I think about it. Well, I, it made me think of the Bishop of Bath and Wells, which was <laughs> yes, a, yeah. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And is much, much later. Yeah. But then that's because most historical references make me think of something in Blackadder. In Blackadder, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having Googled Edward II, there was a uh, a British romantic historical drama film uh, called Edward the Second that was released in 1991. So maybe Doug had just, rights. yeah, maybe Doug had watched <laughs> that recently. Oh, there you go. <laughs> maybe yeah, it's from '91, so around about '94, '95, it might have got its first TV airing. <laughs> <laughs> Doug yeah. and Linda watched that one night, and uh... <laughs> my final small point is that there's a little bit extra to this book that we haven't yet discussed. The very last page is. Uh, a catalogue advert for official Red Dwarf merchandise. Oh, shit, yeah. Oh, nice. Hang on, that's not what I've got. I've got this one. Mine's different. Oh, yours is slightly oh, you different. Got slightly different merchandise. We'll put pictures of these, we'll put uh, scans of these on the, yeah. uh, the, in the show No, notes. they should be reading the sound of the... Of the they read and... the sound of the book. <laughs> <laughs> reading the sound. Okay, See, so that was Daddy's. This, this is mine. There you go. There you go. go. There you um, so yeah, you can. Um, I guess people can pour over that themselves. But something I wanted to highlight from mine is that obviously this is 1995. Prices are going to be different. Um, so the t-shirts that are on sale here, um, the Smeghead t-shirt and the Twatted t-shirt, ten pounds each. Extremely reasonable, even for 1995. I think like yeah, I today's think so. prices, you'd be expecting to pay at least twenty, twenty-five, thirty quid for an official t-shirt, yeah. probably. Yep, thirty quid's getting into jumper territory, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> The leather sleeve jacket, uh, so it's the jacket that's um, it's kind of it's an embroidered jacket all over. It's got Red Dwarf logo on the front, Red Dwarf logo and Starbuck on the back, and it's got leather sleeves. Ninety pounds. Yeah. Ninety pounds in nineteen ninety five. Yeah, leather so was expensive. By today's, uh, like not just inflation in general, but also inflation in terms of how much sci-fi and you know memorabilia yeah. and and merch for. Geeky things has increased. That would that you probably have to take out a second mortgage to buy that shirt, <laughs> that jacket. I have one of those, but I bought it off eBay, and I think it was about forty quid. So yeah. I think I got it for less than it originally sold for. But they are incredibly um, like hardy. They, 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 oh, they're they good. Have, they have standed the test. They have standed the test of time. They've sure. standed it for sure. <laughs> They've still in the eyes of the test of time. <laughs> um, so yeah, fans of. Uh, us looking over old advertising Stuff. leaflets. Um, stick around and uh, keep an eye on Ganymede.tv. <laughs> well, there's a little teaser. <laughs> and speaking of which, who'd like to have a look at my small passage? My passage is um, one of the rare and glorious pieces of Lister Rimmer dialogue that takes place in this book. <laughs> and as you've probably guessed from the few options available, it's uh, Rimmer finding out about his son. Rimmer smirked down at the pole-axed figure. Supposed to be a marine, and he's fainted like a bloody girl guide. 
Who did you say he was? His name is Michael Magruder. He's your son. Pardon me? I said, he's your son. My son? Yes. My son? Yes. My son? Yes. Rimmer cleared his throat and kicked some dirt about with his right foot, then looked up again. Who is he? He's your son, Rimmer. Rimmer looked at Lister, his head angled in bemusement. My son? Yes. That man there, the one who's just fainted. The one who's your son, yes, that one. He's your son. Wait. It's terribly important that I get this clear in my head. Let me tell you what I think you're saying. Rimmer tried to cough away a dry throat. You're saying that this man, this man here, who is my son, is in fact my son. <laughs> there was a cloud of dust and Rimmer joined Magruder, belly up in the dirt. <laughs> Good funny dialogue. Yeah. I think all, yeah, all of our small passages involve Rimmer dialogue. Yeah. We've come up They're with independently of each other. People. There was maybe yeah. something in this character. Like, I think they should probably pay <laughs> more like attention to him in the future. Important. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It looks important. Uh, so, Rimmer and Magruder have their tete-a-tete. For a second, Rimmer was silent. Look, there's things we should talk about. Things you've been told which aren't true. Sir? Your mother, uh, she was a woman. A very remarkable woman. It can't have been easy bringing up a boy on Geomapper's wages, getting you through college and into the academy. Some people, and I used to count myself among them, believe there's a class system, and someone like you, who doesn't have a completely pucker background, would never be admitted into such a high-ranking company. That's bullshit. Your mother went out and proved that. She got you through college, she got you through the Starfleet, and now here you are, an SCM. She's a remarkable woman, or an RW. A truly courageous, remarkable woman. <laughs> TCRW. The next stop is TCRW. <laughs> it's you who are my inspiration, sir. Rimmer shook his head. You owe everything to her. Everything. She really made you into something. Something you should be proud of. Rimmer looked out over the canyon. When I tell you what she had to do to make you into that something, I don't want to hear you feel let down or resentful. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, do you mind if I call you Michael? I'd be honoured, sir. You can call me, um, you know, if you want. Sir? Father or dad or whatever. Really, sir? Anyway, where was I? Oh yes, your mother. The thing is, I never really knew your mother. It was... Rimmer was going to say a one-night stand, but suddenly the phrase stuck in his throat like a second Adam's apple. He couldn't say that to his son. What I'm saying is, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not special. In fact, you are everything I aspired to. Rimmer looked in his son's clear green eyes. I'm nobody, Michael. I could have been, even should have been, but I blamed all my failings and shortcomings on my parents, and that's a well that never runs dry. And I'll stop it there just because it, it goes on mm. <laughs> a bit longer. Um, I find it ironic that Rimmer... Rimmer is there blaming his um, blaming well, identifying his ability to blame his parents for everything, and then Michael falls into the same trap at the end when he storms off into the cave, like blaming yeah. his dad for <clears throat> God knows what. To be honest, <clears throat> yeah, he's blaming his dad for being successful this time rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's your fault. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking weird. Who's Rimmer talking to this time? Rimmer <laughs> is now talking to Crichton. Crichton! Crichton <laughs> was pointing to the four-inch wide oxygeneration outlet pipe that surfaced by the pump housing in the corner of the vault. It's an oxygeneration outlet pipe. So what? 
Sir, if I turned your light me off and set it to delay timer mode, then brought it back online again, say 60 seconds later, we could push your light beam down the outlet pipe and it drop through to the quarters below. Or, alternatively, it could wind up in the oxygen generation unit itself. And that is a possibility. Where I'd get minced. The plan does have a downside, I must confess. A downside? Is, is that what it is? However, if the scheme were to succeed, you would materialise on the deck below and we'd be able to sound the alarm. We could attempt to rescue your son Michael. Nope, I'm sorry, it's too risky. Very well, sir. And don't try and change my mind. It won't work. No, sir. They walked along in silence for almost 20 seconds. You're doing it on purpose, aren't you? Sir, creating this incriminating silence. Stop it. Sir, I'm warning you, Crichton, if you continue this voiceless, unspoken disapproval, you're on charge. Sir, you know what I'm talking about. Now just quit it. Talk or hum or whistle or something. But no more accusing sciences, got it? Yes, sir. You do need again? I can't think of anything to say, sir. Hum, then. Yes, sir. Permission to hum, sir. Granted. Rimmer sighed impatiently. Crichton began humming a plaintive version of Danny Boy. Eventually, Rimmer caught on. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. I've seen mudguards on boy racer mustangs that weren't as low as you. He exhaled and contemplated the floor. After several seconds, he looked up. Right. Very well, okay. I must have less brains than the offspring of a village idiot and a TV weather girl. I'll do it. <laughs> Crichton beamed munificently. Good decision, sir. <laughs> I always thought that Crichton wasn't doing it on purpose, but it seemed like Crichton was doing it on purpose. Yeah, with the Danny I'd boy. say so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, even down to him saying, we could rescue your son, Michael. Oh, at okay. Fir- at first, I thought, that's a bit clunky. That's like, it's a TV cliche that you get people in, in soaps or dramas or whatever saying, oh, it's your sister, Michelle. It's your cousin, Marvin. Marvin, Gary. Cousin- <laughs> and that's like, to tell the audience what people's relationships are when people don't actually talk like that in real life. However, it's it's Crichton having a dig at Rimmer and, and trying to persuade Rimmer to do it. Yeah, I love that section. The only thing I don't like is inserting the offspring of a village idiot and TV weather girl line because it's just it's like it's like, oh well, that's a really good line I'll stick that in there somewhere but it doesn't fit it's just jimmied no, in there yeah it sticks out yeah but the rest of it is good I like the parallel with the very first thing we ever see of Rimmer in the TV universe is him putting a lister on report for humming clicking and being quiet he's <laughs> threatening to put Crichton on report if for he doesn't quiet. <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't make any noises yeah <laughs> That's so specific of threatening to put him on report that it has to be a callback, right? I think so. I think it's yeah. either that or it's just meant to be a funny use of that joke of like, you know, do something or I'll I'll report you. Yeah. If, if that is intended as a callback, it's a good callback. Well, if you want to know about uh, intentional callbacks to the very first scene of Red Dwarf, then wait till you hear our next Dwarfcast, <laughs> which will be on MCOR, <laughs> our commentary for uh, MCOR. You won't believe that... what happens in that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good segue. I think it, it was. It was very good. But then after that, of course, the Dwarfcast book club continues with big reveal backwards. Not the space car manual. No, that's after. Okay. All right, right. The fourth and final thus far novel, um, also known as the second, third novel, <laughs> we're going to be starting on Backwards by Rob Grant. It's going to be a lot more straightforward than Last Human in terms of which bits to read when. It's uh, it's split into self-contained parts that are not fucking massive like the Rage was, <laughs> so we should be all right. I'm going to have to screw with you, mate. 
it's not straightforward. It's straight backwards. Um, so we are going to be next time around reading uh, the prologue, obviously, because that's the first thing, and part one, reverse universe. Uh, that's the prologue and part one, reverse universe. So dig out your copy of Backwards and read along with us. And if you want to leave a comment for us to read out, then do so in the comment section underneath this article over at www.ganymede.tv. To find out more about what we're up to and get links to all our articles and also just some memes and images and bits of news that we can't be bothered to write up into proper articles, then uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working with. Okay. But until next time, stay home, stay safe, stay two metres apart. Stage show coming soon, apparently. Uh, (laughs) Doug's been working on that for a few years now, so I'm sure that's bound to happen as soon as lockdown's lifted. And as always... Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to G&T Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Is it chapter 16 where Rimmer and Magruder have a conversation? Or is that 17? Not 17. No, it's 17. No, it's not 17. Is it? It doesn't really matter. Yeah, sorry. It doesn't it's, really it's, sorry. matter at no, this it's, stage. It's, it's Rimmer and Jester that talk. Honey, shut the fuck up. <laughs> darling. <laughs> <laughs> Don't slouch, darling. And that is supposed to be lucky enough that... Listers irradiated bollocks will be able to produce <laughs> live sperm. Four thousand six hundred and ninety-one irradiated bollocks. <laughs> and speaking of which, who'd like to have a look at my small passage? Uh, that's not how we say. It. Oh, it is. Yeah, small passage. Yeah, no. Is it small yeah. passage? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, right. I was getting confused because it's like, no, it's small points and something else passage. Small passage. Small passage. All right. Well, you, you wouldn't have a small point in a big passage, would you? I mean, like, throwing a hot dog down a corridor. <laughs> Where's that from that we both just... I don't, I don't know. know. We've got a local version of that, which is throw a sausage down Brigger. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, rubbed his eye socket and continued. I'm not going to hee to you... Uh, what? Hang on. Lie. Yeah, that's my that's a transcription problem. <laughs> I'm not gonna hear you. Fucking hell! I'll just read what's on the auto cue. <laughs> fuck you, San Diego. Yeah, fucking I say, fuck you, San Diego. What is a word that begins with stay? Stay. Stay. Alien Petrov scored from the halfway line. <laughs> too niche even for us. Damn. <laughs> How laboured do you want it? <laughs> so that Capsie can understand it. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs>